welcome to Let's Talk Sales. It is hard to believe it is Q4 already. We're just starting the month of October. Hopefully everybody's having fun with all of your various fall activities. But something that you should be thinking about at this time of year is assessing the state of your business going into 2020. What's working? What's not working? Um, You have time if you start this assessment in the fall to really make some changes and set yourself up for success in 2020. So for some advice and best practices, I would recommend you download our ebook, which you can find in the show notes at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod one nine three. We will continue to have conversations about assessing the state of your business here on the podcast. We'll be talking to our guests, um, and you can also check out our blog for all kinds of information and advice for you and your team. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and today I am speaking to the managing partner at Prospect Experience, a company that guides established and venture-backed companies to drive engagement with future customers. He has over 20 years of experience in retail and direct mail marketing, as well as consulting and training leaders. He has won all kinds of awards. He was named one of the 50 most influential people in sales lead management by the Sales Lead Management Association, as well as one of the top 50 sales and marketing influencers by Top Sales World. So he has quite the resume. He also authored a couple of books, including The Truth About Leads and From Chaos to Kick-Ass. So he is based in lovely Sunset, South Carolina, and his name is Dan McDade. I am so glad to have you here, and welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's great to be with you. All right. So I just shared um, some of the highlights from your resume, but a resume is not a person. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, I've spent probably the 40 years of my career, 40 years or so, I guess I should say, um, in doing different things. I started in the retail business and I was in retail business for 10 years. I spent about 10 years in the direct mail marketing or catalog business. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you know, the, the, the next 30 or so years, I spent um, in the B2B sales lead management space. And um, I, um, I have enjoyed all of them, but uh, my background is as an accountant and I liked cost accounting, which was a little bit strange. And, um, <laughs> and I like the way in direct marketing and, and the use of the telephone that, you know, it's very predictable as long as you follow the rules. So uh, I've, I've enjoyed everything that I've done, but I've certainly enjoyed the last 30 years more than anything. You know, that's so funny. I actually started college as a double major accounting and computer science and then somehow landed um, with a degree in the middle uh, with business with the computer information systems emphasis. Uh, And I do think that it's, it's always interesting if you have that accounting mindset sales is something that um, at the very least you should understand at a really deep level because you kind of see the importance of understanding what's coming in, what's going out, um, how how a business works, and you understand how important it is to have consistent sales. So is that kind of where your, um, where do you think your passion for sales really started? Well, I, I remember the moment. Um, I didn't think that I would ever have anything to do with using the telephone to generate leads or, or <laughs> selling anything. But I remember I was, I was in Medford, Oregon, uh, working for a company called Bear Creek Corporation. They owned Harry and David and Jackson and Perkins, among other companies. And I was mm-hmm. talking to a woman who ended up being a, a, a longtime friend. But she was saying that the, she was getting ready to fly to Atlanta, which is where I had lived before Medford, getting ready to fly to Atlanta and spend 
about two weeks in the city of Atlanta, um, getting setting up appointments for business to business gift baskets. And I, I said to her, I said, if you're flying to Atlanta, you're going to check into a hotel, then you're going to start going down the yellow pages, making phone calls, trying to set yourself up appointments. Why don't you set appointments from here? and then just go and spend all of your time on appointments as opposed to having to spend so much of your time on the phone while you're in the city. And to her, and mm-hmm. to, to her that just made no sense whatsoever. But um, it, stayed, it <laughs> stayed with me that, you know, there was a lot of people that were using the phone, you know, incorrectly. Good idea to use a phone, bad idea to fly to Atlanta and set appointments while you're there. So um, I, I just remembered that. And a couple of three years later, I had the opportunity to join a company that was one of the kind of... Um, early uh, companies in the B2B telemarketing or B2B prospect space. And, uh, you know, I, I loved it because I think I was just excited about, you know, how many things were being done wrong <laughs> that could be improved. Definitely. That's a great mindset to have. Um, and I definitely can picture how that would be an approach that to some people would make sense. And then for others of us, we'd look at that and think that's absolutely ridiculous. And I think having the mindset of seeing the problems and seeing ways to do things better um, makes you want to jump in as that trainer, as that consultant. Um, So that leads me actually, you have a very unique website. And when people go to your homepage, which we will link in the show notes, um, because you list a 12 point prospect experience transformation, it's kind of a checklist. Um, And prospects can actually use that to assess their sales organizations in each of those 12 areas to see where they have gaps in prospecting. Do they have people who are doing really kind of not best practice things like um, flying somewhere before they get meetings? So can you tell me a little bit about how you developed that framework of those 12 elements? Yeah, I think it's primarily, you know, it's years of experience and also thinking back on what worked for the very successful clients. You know, the most successful clients were really good at all 12 of these points. But I can identify just a few of them, I think, that might be helpful to the audience and say that of the 12 points, and they're broken down into three groups of four. There's there's four market points, four message points, and then four points having to do with metrics. But if you start at the very top with number one, which is agreed upon lead definition of what I call an ALD, um, it's in many companies, there's no agreement between marketing and sales as to exactly what the definition of a lead is. And as a result, leads are sent to sales and a lot of times they're not qualified or at least they're not qualified to the point that sales would expect them to be. And there's nothing worse than getting a big batch of leads from marketing as a salesperson and finding out that you know only one or two out of a hundred are even qualified. So, you know, the very first thing is to focus on the agreed upon lead definition. And the second thing I think folks do is to broadcast uh, or or prospect too broad an audience. So basically Mm -hmm. identifying your total addressable market um, and making sure that that market is inclusive of all the companies you wanted to include, but it's also exclusive of the companies that are just going to waste your money. You know, and then finally segmenting that target audience um, into groupings. And I, I call it going after the less expensive barrels of oil. But if you have a, a test list of a thousand and you get an overall lead rate of 5%, let's say to make the math easy, you break that down into five groups of 200 and the highest grouping will produce a 9% lead rate and the bottom grouping will, present, will have a 1% lead rate. Well, then you can lock off mm-hmm. huge parts of the universe and just not even address them or address them with a less expensive method um, and really focus your efforts on the very best market. So those are three that are in the market category. And then cadence management, which is in the metrics area, 
cadence management is that, you know, when do you call, how do you call, do you leave a voicemail, do you send an email, you know, how many times do you do that is critically important. And then nurturing will triple the results of, of your marketing campaigns if you effectively nurture. Most companies don't, they really just don't understand how nurturing works. Um, and I'm not talking about necessarily all marketing automation nurturing, I'm talking about, you know, introducing your voice and having a, a conversation with somebody in order to keep um, the top of the funnel filled with uh, high quality prospects. So those are out of the 12, those are the five that I think mm -hmm. are probably some of the most important. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, when I when I first saw your website before we talked the first time and I went through each of these, I thought every single one of those 12 that you've listed is really critical. And um, the reason that we're talking to you um, in this month as we're focused on assessing the state of your business is that one of the key elements that every organization should be looking at as they're, as they're kind of closing out this year and going into next year is what does your prospecting look like? What does your organization look like? Do you have, you know, the right team? Do you have the right focus? And having this, this um, outline of your market, your message, and your metrics in these 12 distinct areas really gives a sense of where is the problem actually? And a lot of times um, I see in my experience that, um, you know, teams might have done part of this, but they didn't do the other part. And you really need to have a comprehensive prospecting approach when you're thinking about, um, you know, developing a comprehensive prospecting strategy. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that if somebody were to start with one and go through 12 and really do a great job of not, not just, um, coming up with a lead definition, but making sure that it's shared by the organization, um, then, you know, companies would find themselves a lot further along than where they are now. Where, where they are now in many cases is that their marketing is throwing leads over the fence to sales. Sales isn't really catching them. And they, they go into a black hole mm -hmm. called CRM and a tremendous amount of waste, <laughs> you know, of money. I know one company, especially it's one of the largest software companies in the world, they one division alone wastes $200,000 a year generating leads that sales won't follow up on. And their excuse for that wow. is, is they say, well, it's too too important a source of leads. There's no place else we can go get 6,000 leads for that much money. But if you get 6,000 leads and none of them are getting followed up on, that's not a very good deal. Oh, that that definitely brings to mind how yeah. many of our clients we see struggling with that. And um, I think when an organization is um, is looking at that kind of annual planning, taking a step back and looking at things, Something that's important to understand is you need to have at every stage of your business an agreed upon lead definition because your your uh, best leads right now might not be the same people that you're targeting next year. And so even to think about, first of all, do we have a definition and have we actually validated any, any time recently? Are, are those still the best leads that we could be targeting? You know, even getting into the total addressable market, have you pretty much tapped out certain segments of the market? And do you need to expand? Do you? And then you have to figure out: Do you expand um, geographically, or do you expand kind of up and down the prospect food chain, or do you think about: Hey, we've we've got you know relatively solid saturation within our target market, and that tells us that we need to develop new offerings so we can go back to this existing market and say, Hey, we've got something else for you. And so all of this, as you're evaluating, it really drives major strategic decisions that you're making as you're going into the next year. It really does. And there's some subtleties here, too. I want to point out that, um, for example, uh, most sales reps have what's referred to as a comfort zone. 
That, mm-hmm. that, that's the zone where they're making enough money to meet their needs from a lifestyle standpoint. And no matter what they say, there's no way that they're going to work, you know, another 10 hours a week to generate the next, you know, X number of dollars because they're making enough money. And there's a lot of folks who don't have a comfort zone. I'm one of them, but there's a lot of folks that do have a comfort zone. And as you're going through all mm-hmm. of these things, you have to recognize that there are some human factors that, you know, weigh in, you know, one of them being, if I don't agree that we've defined, you know, a lead appropriately, then I'm not going to follow up on any of these. That's going to waste a lot of money. And if I'm a person who's in my comfort zone, not willing to work harder than what needs to happen from an organization standpoint is the organization needs to basically deploy differently. They need to cut the territory to make it more difficult to stay in the comfort zone and then let somebody else take advantage of the, you know, the, some new territory in there that they can start working on. So. Uh, there's there's a lot of subtlety here, and I think you know um, having a, a number of years' experience working with different sales and marketing organizations is just helpful because it helps companies uh, understand why something may not be working. It may be perfectly logical, it may be set up right, and then there are some human factors that weigh in and you know create havoc. <laughs> so <laughs> that's just an aside. Yeah, I think anytime you have people involved, you have that havoc and chaos, right. and a lot of times we do see organizations that try to develop systems independent of thinking about the people live within those systems. And you have to really think about the people who are there. I did have a client that had a situation almost exactly like what you were talking about with comfort zones, where they had their highest performing branch and their highest performing rep within that branch. And through a combination of, I think, him hitting his personal comfort zone in terms of the lifestyle he was living, as well as from a system and structure perspective, he was getting caught up in a lot of kind of client admin work that he got pulled into Mm -hmm. as his client base grew. He was prevented from doing much prospecting. You know, again, kind of 50% maybe structural setup and 50%, hey, I'm doing pretty well. Why, Why should I do that hard work? And that was hampering the growth of that branch and the growth of the entire company. And so what they had to figure out is, do we change our structure and process that's going to do part of it. You know, if we say, okay, we're taking away some of that account management responsibility, that's going to free you up to sell. But if we don't think of that other half of maybe he really doesn't want to do a lot of prospecting. Maybe he feels like my network is big enough. I'm going to get referrals from a lot of my existing customers. And I just kind of want to ride to retirement where I am right now. Um, Freeing up his time from account management isn't necessarily going to help with that. So you need to do, you do need to address both sides and think of that human factor um, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then um, we didn't really talk much about that second component that you mentioned. And I think it's so incredibly important when it comes to, again, looking at your business, uh, thinking about your message and not just that kind of big picture marketing message, but really how does that relate down into prospecting and how do your team members, how do your salespeople actually apply your message when it comes to prospecting? Can you speak to that for a bit? Sure. And um, yeah, thanks for asking that. It's a great question. Um, I, I know that many of us read today about the customer experience. I think I think the CX is how they describe it. But you know, you, you hardly pick up a trade publication or listen to a podcast when they're not talking about how can you improve the customer experience. And mm-hmm. you know, improving the customer experience is a way you keep customers. But improving the prospect experience is the way that you get customers in the first place. And I think that you know most people would agree, especially on the sales side of the house, because I do talk to a lot of salespeople and they always agree that 
the prospect experience isn't very good. You know, you have companies that are being contacted by pushy appointment setters where, you know, the objective is to get an appointment at any cost. Um, you've got low-level telemarketers reading from just dreadful scripts, uh, trying to push, you know, push <laughs> Sounding like robots. Yeah, and they're worse. And, and, and you might have um, somebody that's, you know, sending out email after email after email. I know I get them. I'm sure you get them. I have people that are pitching all me, all, you know, several times a week or, you know, probably even several times a day, uh, pitching exactly what I do to, as their service and what I like to buy their service. Mm -hmm. and, and Or you can have all three. You can have pushy appointment setters, low-level telemarketers reading from a script and a barrage of email coming at you. And it really doesn't lend itself to a great prospect experience. If you were to be able to focus on fewer prospects, let's say, and you're able to focus on a better quality experience as prospects, they would end up with a higher percentage of those prospects closing. And then, then at that point, you can start, you know, looking at the customer experience and how can you enhance the customer experience. I just think that the market is a kilter a little bit because there's so much time and attention being focused on the customer experience, which is fine. It, it needs to be focused there. And it's it, they always say it's more expensive to get a new customer than it is to keep an old customer. But at the same time, a lot of money is being wasted on prospecting. And if you could enhance the prospect experience, you're going to save money and you're going to close more deals. I really love that mindset because not only um, is it going to improve your your close rate, and I want to I want to drill down on that for a bit, but also if a prospect's first experience with you is negative, it doesn't matter how amazing your customer experience is, you're kind of having to build up from a hole that you dug at the very beginning, right. and. It's like you said, um, you know, I get those emails. That's the, I think the majority of emails that I get. Uh, I think the majority of phone calls that come into our business are, are those, you know, people sounding like robots. And, you know, what I always wonder is, does anybody get business from this? And certainly you might get something, but it, it is just so obviously a low value activity. It's so obviously I'm just casting the widest net. I'm copy pasting the same email. You know, sometimes you get the email and, and they've got a different company name in there. They forgot to change it when they copy pasted. And that that's not how I want to buy. And if I don't want to buy that way, why would I try to sell that way? And so even just thinking of yourself um, and looking at your organization, you know, how do we try to engage services? Um, are we selling in that way? And typically that initial outreach, that initial point of contact is one of the the most um, unpleasant kind of pointless uh, things that where there's there's generally a lot of room for improvement. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I think that companies forget to look at um, outcomes. I call them outcomes or they sometimes refer to as dispositions. But if you're, let's say you're going after a market and there are a thousand total prospects in your market and you can expect to get somewhere between three to seven percent um, lead rate or three to seven percent of those as leads. So that's somewhere between 30 and 70. A lot of times what happens is, is that it stops there. You know, marketing says, okay, we've done our job. We, we sent a thousand emails or we, we you know, sent a thousand direct mail packages or we made a thousand calls, you know, to, to a thousand prospects or whatever it is. And they turn the leads over to sales and to kind of, you know, wipe their hands clean and move on to the next project. And what, what happens is, is mm -hmm. at the same time that you, you've looked at those 30 to 70, and let's just use 50 to make the math easy, but is at the same time that you've identified those 50 leads, you sh could have and should have also identified 50, what we refer to as pipelines. And a pipeline is 
the right kind of an organization, the right contact or contacts, but just not the right time. And we know that about 20 to 30% of those are going to convert to leads within some reasonable period of time, but we, they're not ready to be turned over to sales. That would be a huge mistake because they're not ready at that point. And, and we're not ready to call them a lead at this point because we still have one or two things that we've got to do to make them a lead. And then the next grouping is the nurtures. That's the, where you, you have the right company and you have the right contacts, but you have no idea what the right time frame is going to be. You haven't learned something. You know, they're not in enough pain. They're not ready to do anything. And, they, and for the foreseeable future, they're not going to be ready to do anything. So you put them into a, a, a nurture cycle and nurture them over a period of time. Well, you can, one of, one of the blogs that we have on nurturing talks about how you can uh, go from generating 50 leads out of 1,000 targets to generating 154 leads out of 1,000 targets just by identifying those pipelines and identifying the nurture candidates. And a lot of times I call that just you know, film being left on the cutting room floor. A lot of times those opportunities to convert more leads from the target audience um, are just not identified because companies really don't know how to effectively nurture. Absolutely. I always think back to that statistic, um, and I know I'm going to get it wrong because I'm trying to think of a statistic off the top of my head, but it's like um, somebody needs to hear about you seven times before they're even going to kind of recognize you as a, as you know, recognize your name as an organization. And a lot of times people give up after just a couple of contacts. And you know, it doesn't at all make sense to send, for example, a direct mail piece or to send an email um, to your entire, you know, potential market and say, okay, we did our work and when we'll close right. however many engage right now. But thinking about, okay, we understand that that's not logical. So now let's take the next leap. What are we actually going to do? And, you know, even just who's responsible for it? At what point in the process does it stop being marketing's responsibility and become a sales responsibility? Because it does make sense a lot of times to say, you know, marketing is going to be responsible for driving the nurturing campaigns. They're the ones maybe who have more skill at coming up with messaging. They're the ones who know how to write the emails. They have the systems and, and, and tools to actually send them. That's fine. But then when is it handed off? And when it is handed off, um, is it really clear who is actually responsible? You know, I've seen organizations where they have a policy that once a lead is handed off from marketing, it needs to be followed up on within 48 hours. And, um, and you know, the status has to be updated in the CRM system just to make sure that you're not wasting time and money. Because why on earth are you going to invest all of that time, you know, generating leads and, and, and building up this complicated system and then just kind of sit on them? It, it's it's not logical. And yet I think it's, it's a state that organizations just seem to fall into without, without thinking about it. Yeah. I think there are two critical things that you just said. One of them is the persistence, you know, staying in front of the prospect over a period of time. My, my favorite example of that is I'll just tell a quick story is that one point we were targeting the CFO at the country's top 50 utilities. And it was a kind of a, back office solution, a big worldwide, you know, well-known consulting company um, was selling. And um, the, the guy who was happened to be a guy who was the CFO of the fourth largest utility in the country, country um, called it mm -hmm. after the 42nd touch and said, don't stop <laughs> calling me. You're my conscience. I've been wanting to talk to you. I've just been extremely busy. Call me next Tuesday at 10 o'clock and I'll take a call. Five months later, that closed for a billion dollars for our client, literally a billion dollars. 
Oh my goodness. Somebody said, well, it wasn't 42 touches too many. And I said, no, 42 touches is exactly the right number because that's, <laughs> he called and, and the touches included telephone calls. He saved a couple of voicemails, some emails. He saved a couple of emails. And then we mailed a magazine that was a controlled circulation publication where one of our clients' clients was on the cover, happened to be the CFO of another large utility. And he saved that magazine too. Um, and, and all of that added up to, and we used to call that multi-touch, multimedia, multi-cycle marketing. Now it's just referred to as a cadence. But um, when you design a cadence to try to get the perfect prospect experience, it's going to include multiple touches, you know, multiple types of touches, as well as multiple cycles of touches over a period of time in order to optimize the value of the, whatever the list is or whatever the target market you have is. And then the handoff, you mentioned the two things, the persistence and then the handoff. Handoff is critically important. I've seen many more companies fail trying to enforce SLAs on sales. Um, you know, sales is driven by control, credit, and compensation. And anything that they perceive is going to threaten one of the three C's I call them, you know, they fight back on. So they fight back on SLAs. And, and the reason they do that is because so many times they'll follow up on a lead and it really wasn't a lead. It was somebody that agreed to say, yeah, I'll take that mm -hmm. call or whatever. And it wasn't really a qualified lead. They didn't have a pain, a priority, and a process for a decision, and they didn't have, or, or they might not have had the right environment for that company to be selling into. But the handoff is critically important because I have something that I call the judicial branch, whereas if you've identified the right definition of a lead, and <laughs> a lead goes from marketing to sales and it does not meet that definition, then it's stopped and it's sent back and it's evaluated. If it goes to sales, if it does meet the lead definition, sales doesn't work it, but that has a different consequence. But unless you, you know, shine the bright light on the fact that so many leads are going into a black hole, and the reason for that is because they're really not qualified, and sales has gotten tired of following up on unqualified leads, so they just stop doing it. And as a result, the SLA falls apart because they're not getting follow-up, or worse yet, they're just marking it as not qualified and moving on. And some, some portion of those are qualified. So it's a a tricky situation, but it can be resolved. You know, if you put in the right lead definition and you put in the judicial branch to evaluate what's happening to those leads, you can fix those problems. I really love that because even though I was the one who brought up having that SLA, you're right in that you're not going to fire your top sales rep because they didn't meet that SLA. And so it right. really doesn't have any teeth to it anyway. And instead of just, you know, focusing on the the policy and trying to figure out, um, you know, how do we develop a better policy, really thinking about, okay, why are they not getting, um, getting followed up on like we think they should be and, uh, and looking for the reason behind it um, is going to probably address the behavior more effectively. Absolutely. All right. That third component that you talk about in terms of metrics, I think that's a really important one, especially as people think about, again, assessing um, assessing your prospecting organization, assessing kind of where you are in this area. Can you talk a little bit about um, what um, what metrics somebody should be looking at when they're evaluating their prospecting organization? Sure. Um, you know, obviously, uh, what, one of the things that you're looking at on any list is um, how how does how do the facts or how do actuals uh, compare to what you projected? So if you projected that you're going to get a five percent lead rate, a five percent pipeline rate, a twenty five percent nurture rate, a fifty percent no response rate, and then you know ten or fifteen percent whatever is left over for what we refer to as bad, so, you know, it's just bad information. 
um, if you're coming in and, and let's say the first three components, leads, pipelines, and nurtures come to a total of 35%. And if you're coming in where your total qualified is 14%, well, then you know that you didn't do a very good job with the list selection. Or if it's coming at the qualified rate of 50%, then you know that you probably are under um, estimating the total addressable universe. So one of the first things to look at is, you know, what do we expect in the way of results and then what are we actually seeing in those results? Then you can get a lot more granular. You can say, you know, we're going to invest 10, 12 touches over a 10 day period. Three or four of those touches are going to be phone calls, three voicemails will follow up and then we'll send an immediate email out. And then we know that we reach a point of diminishing return in our touch cycle so that if we were to invest, let's say we invest 20 touches, we wouldn't get that many more incremental dispositions or completed contacts. And if we only invested five touches, then we're really under touching. So that's the next thing is taking mm -hmm. a look at, you know, and, and always testing on how many dials, how many voicemails, how many emails. And by the way, we get about 50% of the, the leads that we generate as a result of a callback, an email back or something we call a scheduled call. So sometimes you'll have somebody say, you know, well, I don't leave voicemails and I don't send emails because nobody responds to them anyway. Well, they certainly don't respond if you haven't sent it to them. So we, you know, we believe that it's, you know, there's a lot of testing that goes on with voicemails and emails, but they're critically important to success. And no matter what you say, you know, people don't immediately hang up. If, if you know, if you leave a bad voicemail, like you know, somebody says, "Hey, Elizabeth, it's very important that you call me back immediately." You know, those are what I call tricky ones. You know, that yeah. everybody hates. But you know, if you leave a a nice succinct uh, twenty second voicemail that gives the person a reason to call. Perhaps you're offering some insights, you know, which is the real popular thing to say these days, but perhaps you're offering something of value to them, you know, then they're going to take a minute and call you back. At least some of them will, not all of them, but some of them will. So that, that's the second thing is that how many dials, how many voicemails, how many emails do you use direct mail? In some cases you can effectively, and in some cases you can't. And then, you know, the, the serious decisions has tracked for years, you know, what percentage of sales qualified leads to sales close you know, they, this, these statistics are a little bit average, but, you know, 20% of, um, uh, of sales qualified leads are closed by average companies and the best in class companies close closer to 30%. I've always felt like those numbers were a little bit high, but, you know, they're using, you know, what's referred to as the waterfall, which is goes from, you know, from marketing qualified leads to sales accepted leads to sales qualified leads. And then finally the leads that are closed in one. And, um, you know, that, that waterfall, you, you, you're showing that you're losing 70 or 80 percent of the marketing qualities before you get to sales qualified. Well, that's mm -hmm. way too high. So that's the other thing I would look at is how are those percentages breaking down? And, you know, yeah, is it cost Yeah, where are you starting? Driving? Right, exactly. You know, is, is it cost effective? Ending. And then, you know, what the, the close rate is one thing, but, you know, business that isn't closed that where there's a no decision and how do you follow up on that you know, who follow, like you said earlier who follows up on that does that go back to marketing and go back into the mixer um you know it doesn't it honestly it doesn't matter although i agree with i think you said something close to this which is, is that you know marketing has more of the tools and maybe even more of the mindset to do the nurturing on behalf of sales for sales if they're focused and paid for closing business, you know, salespeople do what you pay them to do, not what you want them to do. So you want to <laughs> closing business, not looking for business or not nurturing business. Definitely. And, you know, I, I can't help but go back to that story you told of that billion dollar deal. Again, we have to think of ourselves because um, most salespeople, most um, 
sales leaders and, and managers, you also buy things. <laughs> um, maybe you're not buying things at the same level that you're selling, but you're a person and the people that you're selling to are people. And you have to think about, um, I have things that I know I need to handle and things I know I need to buy. And it actually doesn't bother me if I get an email about those things. It's just kind of a, a pleasant reminder. It's a little bit of accountability. And I know that then when I need to follow up on it, I won't have to scroll back six months in my email, I will have something somewhat mm -hmm. recent um, versus I know which ones are irritating. And thinking through um, thinking through that process, thinking through that approach is really key. I love that idea of, um, of just tracking earlier in the process because a lot of times people are only tracking their, their close rates and, and everything based on kind of later stage. And you don't realize how much waste there is early on. And if there's a lot of waste early on, you can really think about two things. First of all, can we either cut the amount of things that we're doing so that we're not just, you know, um, following up on and, and chasing bad prospects, but also can we improve the quality of what we're doing so that we're getting more throughput from that process? And there's really two ways that you could see improvement there just by looking at that earlier stage um, and seeing what exactly is happening there. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's th those best practices when followed are make a huge difference in the end results. And again, you know, the whole idea behind prospect experience is that you can narrow the audience and you can invest more in fewer prospects and close more business and, and it's it's not only efficient but it's also cost effective because you'll save money absolutely all right one of my favorite questions to ask our guests um, because i'm a big reader is what are some of your favorite sales or business growth books that you would recommend to our listeners sure um i appreciate your asking that because there's some really good ones out there that i've enjoyed um first of all my favorite author and speaker from a business standpoint is mike weinberg and he has three books out right now. He has one called New Sales Simplified, which I love. If you're a sales rep, um, I would definitely get that book and read it. And the second book was called Sales Management Simplified, and it's probably the best sales management book out there right now. He just published another one, and I've got to be honest with you, I haven't read it yet. Maybe he'll listen to this and send me one for free, but <laughs> it's, it's called Hashtag Sales Truth. And uh, everything I've read about that book, it's also excellent. And then uh, Trish Bertuzzi with the Bridge Group up in the Boston area, she has something that I just finished, and, and it's been out a little while, but maybe a couple of years even, but I just finished the book, and it's called Sales Development Playbook. And it's packed. Um, so if you're looking at setting up SDRs, so sales development reps, or you have some sales development reps and want to improve you know, what you're doing, I would definitely look up Trish Bertuzzi in the sales development playbook because it's really good. Nice. Um, I actually spoke to Mike Weinberg about hashtag sales truth. And oh, great. Um, I can definitely say, first of all, uh, the, the book is great. And I, I read it in preparation for the interview. Um, and as you said, he's just such a clear communicator and mm -hmm. um, just has such nice, basic best practices. And I... I especially like that he has, you know, new sales simplified and sales management. A lot of times I see that sales managers aren't necessarily spending as much time as they should be spending looking at best practices for sales management. Instead, and this is completely understandable, they're looking for best practices for sales and sharing them with their team. 
But you need to be working on yourself as well to be a more effective manager. And one of the best things that you can do is read and listen to interviews and you know podcasts like this one um, and really focus on being a better and more effective leader because that's something you have control of. And, um, and it's important as a leader to do that. So great recommendations. Yeah, I think everybody will enjoy those books. Definitely. All right. And um, another question I like to ask is for an actionable tip. We are really committed to providing actionable advice that our listeners can apply to their lives and to their businesses today. Do you have an actionable tip that you would recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I do. Um, It it may be a little bit cliche because it's one that you see from time to time. And and actually, I tried to find the um, origin of this and and I couldn't find it. In fact, several people apparently have tried to find it. But the, the expression is that you inspect what you expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so inspecting what you're expecting. Um, the way that I talk about that is I say, you know, I try to tell managers to, to see what's there as opposed to seeing what they want to see. Going back yes. to just a second ago, you know, you had mentioned that sales managers need to be excellent at sales management, not just sales. And I know as a, as a, as a leader, uh, I've been guilty of this too, is, is that I see something and I see what I want to see as opposed to see what's there. And that's cost me a lot over the years. Um, so just, you know, uh, ask some questions, you know, be a little bit suspicious, a little bit cynical and uh, see if you're seeing what's really there as opposed to just what you're expecting to see. I really love that in the context of what we've been talking about. Um, and, the, you know, a couple of things when you're obviously assessing your business, but also really specifically when you were talking about, um, about again, that, that kind of top of funnel and, and when you've got a lot of marketing spend, when you're looking at spending a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to get leads, that's just kind of, it becomes in your mind the cost of doing business. And when you take a step back and look at what's actually happening and look at um, what leads you're, you're getting out of it. Sometimes you need to say, okay, you know, let's have a bit of a wake-up call. <laughs> let's stop spending that money, and we can spend that in different areas. And so sometimes you really need to just have that that kind of big aha moment, um, wh- especially when you're looking at some of these kind of pointless prospecting activities, to really think about how could we be addressing um, that prospect experience in such a way that we're going to be getting a lot more business and, and be a lot more successful. Yeah, one of the one of the most popular articles ever <laughs> is. Is something that I wrote years ago, and I just recently refreshed it on the Prospect Dash Experience uh, website. Is how much should a lead cost? And and the, the final mm-hmm. line in that in that blog is is a, you know probably more more than you think, but probably a lot less than you're spending. And <laughs> one of the one of the first things that we'll do with companies that have a lot of different channels is that let's say for example they've got trade shows, they're doing webinars, and they're doing. Um, um, controlled circulation publications or shared, you know, shared lead services and that kind of thing is to actually tell them what a qualified lead costs. Because it really doesn't matter what the lead itself costs. A good example of that is that this company that I was actually referring to that was wasting a lot of money on leads, I referred to them just a little while ago, um, they, they came up with that they're spending $23.15 per lead. That um, actually translated to $2,400 per qualified lead. And, you know, and $2,400 per qualified wow. lead, if they were closing one out of five, that meant, you know, it was a $12,000 per closed deal, um, which may be fine if they're selling a, a million-dollar product and then the $12,000 per closed deal isn't bad. But that's what you have to look at is, is, you know, what's the likely ROI? 
and really look at what's the cost of the qualified lead as opposed to just looking at what the raw cost of the lead is. I love that. And that's where probably that cost accounting background that you have comes in yeah, really handy yeah. um, to yeah. think about it. Because uh, again, that's what you're, see what's there, not what you want to see. A lot of times you've got costs that are sitting there that you're not actually applying to where they, where they should be. And you're saying, oh, that, you know, that's marketing budget. It's like, well, no, that's actually cost of lead gen and, and you should be including it. Yeah, Absolutely. All right. Well, I have so much enjoyed our conversation today, Dan. I hope our listeners do as well. If you want people to learn more about you, um, more about your work, where should they go? I'd go to prospect-experience.com. That's our website, prospect-experience.com. Email address and my telephone number are both there, as are the 12 points in the prospect transformation or prospect experience transformation process. So um, again, prospect-experience.com. All right. We will definitely include a link to that in the show notes. And again, I can confirm, I'm sure our listeners will, will get that after hearing to the, hearing this conversation that we just had. Um, it's a very clear website, very clear um, guidance. And I think people will be able to do a lot of self-evaluation of their organization when they look at those 12 points and see where they might need some help from somebody like you. And we're, so and we're just, happy to help at, at any time. So if you call me or if you email me, it doesn't mean I'm trying to sell you. It just means that you know we're going to have a conversation and hopefully I'll have a new friend in the industry and hopefully I can do you some good. So uh, please don't hesitate to reach out. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for speaking to me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. All right. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything we've been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod193. Be sure to tune in next week where I will be interviewing the CEO and co-founder of Spiro.ai, Adam Honick. And in the meantime, check out this Friday's inspirational episode where Laura is going to be sharing a great quote that is sure to inspire you about assessing the state of your business. As a reminder, if you have any feedback for us, um, guest suggestions, topics, questions you want us to address, you can reach us at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. If you are enjoying the show, please, please, please recommend us to a friend and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you are listening today. And while you're there, if you leave a rating or a review, that'll help more people find the show and it lets us know it's working and where we have room to improve. Remember to follow us on Twitter at let's underscore talk underscore sales. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!